I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante. And if I sound a little different in this episode of the podcast, that's because something rather wild has happened. We have actually built a soundproof podcasting room in our home. How is that possible? So that our podcast can go on in a better space. So I am no longer in my office at my desk. I'm actually in... (laughs) In a walled, cork-lined room. I must be Proust. This seems my destiny. Well, anyway, here we are walking with Dante, and we have walked all the way down through the eighth circle and have passed the end of fraud and are now coming into a strange space, Canto 31, that lies between the eighth and ninth circles of fraud. I have to tell you in advance, before we even get to the passage for this episode of the podcast, that Canto 31 is one of my favorites in all of Inferno. I love this Canto so much because I think that it appears incredibly simple, and the more you think about it and the more you work with it, the more complex and weird and discursive and digressive and odd it becomes, the more it starts to show the absolute layering of Dante's art. We're at lines 7 through 27 of Canto 31. Let me remind you where we've been. We've come out of the giant circle of fraud with its 10 malabolgia. At the very end, Dante got caught up in watching an insult match between Master Adam and Sinon the Greek. At the end of that insult match, Virgil severely reprimanded Dante. Dante felt himself taken aback and then healed by the reprimand with a reference to Achilles' sword, And so they're ready to start off again. Let's start walking with Dante and his guide, Virgil, on beyond the eighth circle of hell at lines 7 through 27 of Canto 31. We gave that suffering valley our backs by mounting up over the bank that encircles it and transversing it without a single disquisition between us. At this spot... It was less than night and less than day, so I could peer only a little ways in front of us, but I heard a blaring trumpet so overpowering that it would make any peal of thunder seem feeble. My eyes were yanked to that spot along the way where the noise had stopped. Not even Roland blew such a terrible blast when Charlemagne lost his holy company after that sad rout. I turned my head in that direction only for a little bit when I saw what appeared to be many high towers. So I said, tell me, master, what city is this? And he to me, Because you're still trying to make it out through the darkness from too far away, your ability to discern things isn't so great. You'll see it right when you reach the spot and understand your sight was deceived by distance. So press on with fervor. 
We're going to stop it right there with Virgil's exhortation for them to keep walking, to keep moving, despite the blaring, loud, and wildly historical trumpet sound that Dante has heard. This is a bit of a complicated passage because of that reference to Roland and Charlemagne, but it's also got some interesting scientific background to it. We're going to take it bit by bit, and then at the end, I want to talk about a larger issue that is going to keep coming up in Canto 31. Let's take it from the top. In his essay on this canto in Lectura Dantis, the compendium of essays on Inferno, Massimo Pesaresi claims that Canto 31 is a canto that is marked by, and here's the quote, a series of reversals of sensations, feelings, and modes. Let me explain that for a second. By sensations, of course, he would mean physical sensations, what the five senses notice. Feelings would be, of course, how you feel about things. After all, we've just come off Dante being reprimanded, and we're going to see a reversal in that feeling from Virgil in the next episode of this podcast. And then modes. And what he means by modes are literary modes, tragic, comic, melodramatic, romantic. These are the basic modes known to Dante, and they are going to alternate fast and quick in Canto 31. One of the things that's so interesting about Canto 31 is following the quick alteration amongst literary modes. We're going to talk a lot more about that. But let me give you three examples from this passage about this kind of notion of reversals inside of it. So they're going on and they're transversing the distance without, as I translated it, a single disquisition between us. Dante's uh, phrasing is a bit like without a single bit of sermonizing or without a single bit of formal analysis. There is silence that marks their progress, and then that is instantly broken by this blaring trumpet. There's a reversal right there, silence broken by the trumpet that starts this passage, and it keeps making strange reversals. For example, it then goes on and compares that blast of the trumpet to Roland blowing his trumpet when Charlemagne loses his campaign. We'll talk much more about that in a bit. But that itself is yet another reversal, a reversal for the great Charlemagne in one of his campaigns, all through an act of treachery, this great reversal that Charlemagne underwent at a battle. We'll talk more about that historically in just a moment. And then finally, at the very end of the passage we read, we see that there's a misperception. Dante thinks he sees a series of high towers, and Virgil corrects him. And he corrects him, saying that you're not seeing this properly because of the distance away still to go. This middle ground between the 8th and the ninth circle is also big, and that's another little bit of misperception. We have been at other middle grounds inside of Inferno. For example, the Dark Wood 
that our pilgrim wakes up in or right in front of the walls of Dis after they come off the off the sticks off the river sticks they they get to those walls of Dis and there appears to be not much ground between where they get out of the boat and then the walls of the city of Dis itself or that drop over the edge that Garion flies them down again a small amount of territory. It's a large drop, but a small amount of, what do we want to say, length of distance inside the territory itself, despite the sharp drop down. Here, in this case, the distance must be quite large between the eighth and ninth pits. This ground is a long way to traverse because distance is foregrounded as a problem in perception. Look at just right there, all those misperceptions, all those reversals going on. And throughout Canto 31, there will be more. But by bringing up this question of the distance, it brings up this bit that is so interesting about the science of the passage. We have to go all the way back to a Polish theologian and natural philosopher, Vitello Turingopolinus. This figure, now mostly just known as Vitello, was a rather, what do I want to say, prolific writer of the 1200s. His birth and death are very hard to pin down. Maybe born around 1230, maybe died around 1300, maybe maybe 10 years before, maybe even 20 years after 1300. Very, very difficult to pin down his birth and death. Wrote many treatises, based many of them on Arabic and Islamic thinking. This will play out in the next passage. And the work we're particularly concerned with here is the Perspectiva, which was written between 1270 and 1278. Yes, you heard that right. Perspective. Perspectiva. What Vitello claims inside this work is the way that the senses apprehend the world, the way he's trying to get at as a natural philosopher, we would now call a forerunner of a scientist, a natural philosopher. How do the senses perceive the world? And one of the discussions he gets into is why do you miss see things, misperceive things with your eyes? Why is it that your eyes don't always yield a clear perspective on what you're looking at? Viltello claims there are two reasons, defective light and distance. Well, look at this passage. What does it say? It was less than night and less than day in this place. So there is def- definitely defective light. And what does Virgil say? You're too far away to see it yet. And to make this even wilder, Vitello's claim in the Perspectiva is uh, that that uh, his example for how this works out, I should say, the, the way that he says, look, this is how you missee things. He uses towers as his example, and he uses turrets or towers as seen through the murky light of twilight as his example of misperception. It seems too close to this passage. I mean, we have no actual way of knowing 
that Dante the poet read Vitello's Perspectiva, but boy, does it seem close for this guy to have said defective light and distance are the causes of not seeing things right and then use towers as its examples. It It seems just a little bit too coincidental. And it's interesting that Virgil then becomes kind of a natural philosopher, that he in this passage offers uh, a current au courant, shall we say, an au courant rationale for misperception from Dante's day. It, that's interesting because Virgil is so often interested in other things, in philosophical matters, in ethical matters, in explaining Aristotle and his ethics, in explaining Aristotle even and his physics. Virgil rarely comes to the position of a current natural philosopher, but he does in this passage, which is another bit of misperception or reversal or not exactly the way we usually think of Virgil acting. Yes, of course, Virgil explains a great deal in Inferno and even ahead in Purgatorio. But nonetheless, Virgil doesn't often come at it from such a position, again, as a natural philosopher. Okay, let's go back and look at that reference to Roland blowing his horn. Dante the Pilgrim hears this loud, blaring trumpet, so overpowering that it would make any peal of thunder seem feeble. There's yet another reversal. That is, this unnatural sound is much louder than any natural sound. His eyes are yanked in that direction, so he turns to see where, where, where did this trumpet blast come from? And then he offers this simile, this uh, little bit of historical detail. No, it's not really a simile. It's more just like that Thebes and Troy bit. It's just a little bit of historical insertion. Not even Roland blew such a terrible blast when Charlemagne lost his company after that sad rout. Dante is here picking up a story Maybe from the Chanson du Roland, from Roland's song, but there are many other sources in the Middle Ages that Dante could have read that include this story. And you should know that even if Dante were reading the Chanson de Roland, even if he were reading Roland's song, he's not reading it in the version that you and I could read today. So the exact source of this detail is a little hard to pin down, but here's the story. Charlemagne is engaged in a battle against Islamic forces. It is the Battle of Roncevaux. It's 778. Charlemagne is attempting to push back Islamic forces. Ganelon, one of Charlemagne's um, cohorts, advisors, close personal advisors, Ganelon betrays Charlemagne. Ganelon alerts the Islamic forces that Charlemagne is going to move on. Roland, another general cohort, close advisor, is keeping the rear guard behind Charlemagne's troops. The Islamic forces attack. 
Roland blows his horn. Ganelon says to Charlemagne, I don't know what that was. I mean, what is that, that horn sound? Anybody could blow a horn, at least so it goes in many stories. And Charlemagne is too far away anyway to send back troops to help. Roland is slaughtered by the Islamic invaders, having been betrayed by Ganelon and having... Uh, been too far behind Charlemagne to receive any help. Roland's trumpet is named Oliphant, and when he blows Oliphant, it's too late. Some of the stories are very precise that he blows Oliphant, the Islamic forces show up, he tries to blow it again, uh, one of the Islamic commanders grabs up the horn, it's still got the blood of Roland on it, the blood is dripping off Oliphant. I mean, many of these tales are quite detailed about this betrayal and this defeat by Islamic forces, a rare defeat for Charlemagne. And so when we see this reference here, we know we're in the company of treacherous acts. We're going to follow out this historical node in later episodes of this podcast because it's going to trace through this passage. And the way it's going to trace is going to become increasingly weird as we pass it through Canto 31. So that's all ahead. Just keep remembering in Canto 31, Roland blowing his horn, trying to get Charlemagne's attention, having been betrayed and Islamic forces attacking. Just keep that all up in your head as we move through Canto 31, because it will perform one of the great reversals inside of this canto. Let me say one point. I'm going to actually say two points, but let me start with one point about what happens inside this passage. If you notice, Dante the Pilgrim misperceives, right? I mean, we know this already. He thinks he sees high towers. He says, Master, what city is this? Which is an extremely interesting phrase in and of itself. What city is this? We'll talk about that in a minute. And and then Virgil says, well, it's not. It's not a city, but you're too far away to see exactly what it is. Dante is approaching the center of hell. You surely know that we're at Canto 31, line 7 through 27, and we are fast approaching Canto 34, the end of Inferno. We have passed the eighth of the circles. We're heading toward the last ninth circle of hell. And we've already been told by Virgil that it is a particularly disgusting place way back in Canto 11 for those who betray some special bond between each other. It's not just fraud as in I defraud some Joe walking down the street, counterfeit some coin and pass it off to people I don't even know. Instead, this is a deeper level of fraud. This is a fraud that breaks a bond between people. You and I have a relationship and I stab you in the back. You also know that we're reaching the bottom of hell, Canto 34. I mean, we've got to get out of this thing, right? We know Purgatorio is coming up and we're coming down toward the bottom. What is so interesting is that in each of the canticles, in Inferno, in Purgatorio, and in Paradiso, as Dante the Pilgrim approaches the final revelation, his first act is a mystery 
perception. Here, he thinks he sees towers. They're not towers. When we get to Purgatorio, he's going to think as he approaches the final revelation at the back of Purgatorio. He thinks he's going to see lightning and golden trees. What he doesn't know is that he's seeing walking candlesticks. But his first reaction is a misperception. And when we get up to the top of Paradiso, so far ahead of us, it's unseeable. When we get clear up there, Dante is going to think he sees a liquid river of light flowing over a garden. But he doesn't. He's approaching the final revelation of the redeemed and God. In each case, Dante's misperception is to mistake something animate for something inanimate. Here, he thinks he sees towers. These are not towers. They are, in fact, something living, dead maybe, but living, let's say, and breathing in Purgatorio. Those aren't trees. Those are walking candlesticks that are somehow alive and walking around. In the final revelation in Paradiso, that's not a garden. Those are the redeemed. Those are the saints. Those are the people up in heaven. And that's not a river of light. It's all completely animate. Those are angels. And and that's the redeemed. In each case, Dante thinks he sees something inanimate, which is in fact animate. And that can't be, again, a coincidence or a mistake. It can't be a mistake that Dante the Pilgrim has worked this out so that in each of the canticles, this is how you approach the end. You think you see something inanimate when, in fact, it's animate. We're going to have to wait till the next episode of this podcast to find out what exactly is animate here. But, okay, let's just take it for what it is and say that this misperception right toward the end is a repeated motif in each of the three canticles of comedy. Let me also say a second big point about this passage and the 31st canto as a whole. We have entered a liminal space. Let me explain that for a minute. A liminal space is the spot between worlds. The easiest liminal space that I can give you as an example is a doorframe. If you came into my office today and you stood in the door of my office and you started some big conversation with me, let's say you said, you know, um, I, I don't know why you're doing a whole podcast on Dante and whatever possessed you to start this two years ago. <laughs> I don't know. And why are you doing this? Okay, you know that eventually I would say, well, get out of the doorway and come in here. You're standing between the rooms and you're saying something to me. And it makes me sitting in my office a little uncomfortable. I'm like, well, come on in and sit down and let's talk about it. It's the same thing in therapy. Uh, Shrinks often call this the doorknob moment. If you've ever been to therapy, you, you know, you've done this. We've all done this. I've done this in therapy. We've all done this in therapy. That is, you know, you go through your entire session, you say everything you have to say, you get it out, whatever it is that you need to get out in that session, whatever you're working through at that moment, you get up, it's time to leave, you get to the doorknob, <laughs> the door, you put your hand on the doorknob and you turn back around and say, and also, and then you drop some giant <laughs> 
situation just as you're standing there at the door, at the doorknob moment. That's because you're about to pass through the barrier between worlds, between the worlds of your therapy and the worlds of your reality outside of therapy. In this place, you feel the ability to drop the truth in its kind of full, unvarnished glory. Liminal spaces are the spaces that shamans enter and that the oracle at Delphi enter. They're not entering the other world. The oracle of Delphi doesn't disappear from her spot. She instead is still in that spot, but able to reach through a threshold into the next world. A shaman in a ritualistic dance doesn't leave this world. Instead, he enters or she enters the liminal space between worlds where communication can pass back and forth. And this space here in the 31st canto, is without a doubt liminal. It is between existences. And we're going to talk much more about this in episodes ahead because the entire canto is between. Not only is it between the 8th and ninth uh, circles of hell, of course, but it exists as a kind of liminal poetic space. There are even two liminal moments inside this passage. It says right toward the start of where we were at line 10. It was less than night and less than day. Notice that median position right there. Less than night and less than day. It just screams liminality to me. And also when Dante says, tell me, Master, what city is this? The word he uses is terra. He could use a more accurate word for city. Terra has been used before in comedy to mean city. But terra means more than just city, like the city limits of, I don't know, Munich or the city limits of Paris. Terra means terroir, terrain. It indicates a ruled area. It's not just necessarily a city in the sense of what we think of as a modern political unit. Rather, it's more in the Greek and medieval Florentine sense of city-state. That is, Siena as a terra is not just what happens inside Siena's walls, but it's also the surrounding area that includes the influence and is under the thumb of Sienese rule. That word terra, again, it leads us out to a larger landscape, and it does show us a kind of liminality in some way because we're not talking about necessarily a fortified unit, although we'll see we're going to get close to that. We're talking about more of a differentiated landmass where the territory goes out a bit and then we get into fudgy bits that's that kind of, you know, um, what do I want to say, that overlap onto other city-states territories. So again, the word terra there helps us, again, see this as a rather liminal spot. Liminal spaces are notoriously, one, transgressive. That is, you can stand in the liminal space and say things and do things you wouldn't on either side of the threshold. This is the shaman's great power. 
This is how she or he can communicate from beyond because he can stand in this transgressive space and reach into both worlds and say something that maybe he could never say or she could never say in either world were they solidly in it. The liminal space is also the threshold, to use the words I've used before, the threshold of revelation. It's this place in which revelation is prepared, is advanced, it's right there between it. And because it's not full revelation, but the threshold of revelation, it's often confusing. Let's go back to the shaman. What the shaman says is often deeply confusing. What the prophet says, what John the the the, uh, the, the, uh, the apostle says in the revelation of the apocalypse of St. John, in that liminal space in which he sees this kind of wildly allegorical world, it's very difficult to interpret. When you throw... <laughs> The truth of your life that you shrink from the doorknob. Again, it's transgressive. Well, I, I, I didn't tell you this, but uh, here's the big secret. It's transgressive, but it's also sometimes very hard to unpack. It is often the threshold of revelation without being revelation itself. And finally, of course, the liminal space is notorious as a truth-telling space. It's a space in which the prophet, the oracle, the shaman, the religious figure, they can communicate the truth. It may be murky and difficult to see, but the truth is getting expressed inside this liminal space. It is finally, and this is, of course, what I'm coming to, it is finally the space of creativity. Artists yearn for the liminal spot. It's not that when I'm writing a novel, a poem, etc., I necessarily want to get lost in that world. I want to stand in this world and be able to write it. Let's but let, let me let me just unpack that for a second. Let's say I'm writing a novel or a short story. No, no, let's say a novel. Why not? <laughs> I'm writing a whole novel. I'm imagining this entire scenario in this novel. I don't know. I don't know what's happening in my novel. My my heroine is on a car journey out west to California. I don't know. But I've got her in this car journey and, you know, various things are going to happen to her on the way from uh, Oklahoma to California. I want to stand in that liminal space as the writer because I still want to type it on my keyboard. I still want it to keep going. And I'm still in this world banging it out on my keyboard, explaining it. I I don't want to leave this world. I don't want to evaporate from this spot. I want to be right here because I want my fingers moving or however I'm doing it, if I'm dictating the words, however however you're writing. I, I still want to be here being able to do it. But at the same time, I want to be fully in her world, in my heroine's world, in her car as she transverses the American West. And so I, the writer, the, the, the artist, am sitting between worlds. If you're a painter, this is what happens, right? You, you don't want to evacuate this world. You still want to work with your paints. You still want to reach down, figure out your colors. You want to see the colors in front of you. You want to figure out how to use those colors on the canvas. And yet at the same time, you want to get caught, lost. Um, you want to be over in the world that is happening on the canvas itself. In the end, where you want to be is liminal, is the space between. And 
That's what this canto is, and that's why it is so absurdly creative, transgressive, reversing, difficult. <laughs> it's why it's such an astounding canto in itself, Canto 31. Before we leave, let me read this one more time. By the way, you know this already, but you can find this passage, my English translation, on my website, markscarbo.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can drop a comment there. You can... Um, talk about more about liminality and this space if you want or anything else about this passage let me just read you again my english translation of canto 31 lines 7 through 27 we gave that suffering valley our backs by mounting up over the bank that encircles it and transversing it without a single disquisition between us at this spot it was less than night and less than day so I could peer only a little ways in front of us. But I heard a blaring trumpet, so overpowering that it would make any peal of thunder seem feeble. My eyes were yanked to that spot along the way where the noise had stopped. Not even Roland blew such a terrible blast when Charlemagne lost his holy company after that sad rout. I turned my head in that direction only for a little bit when I saw what appeared to be many high towers. So I said, tell me, master, what city is this? And he to me, because you're still trying to make it out through the darkness from too far away, your ability to discern things isn't so great. You'll see it right away when you reach the spot and understand how your sight was deceived by distance. So press on with fervor. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. I hope that you are starting to see that Canto 31 is going to be a wild ride. To take that ride, you've got to subscribe to this podcast. I would so appreciate a rating. If you would rate the podcast, just uh, drop down on that Apple or Audible page. Give it a rating, and you'll see even a way to drop a comment. That would be spectacular. Thank you for being on this journey with me. Thank all of you who have contacted me to ask questions, to drop questions onto my website, markscarborough.com, to question my interpretations of things. Many of my interpretations over the course of Inferno have changed based on your comments. I hope that I have been able to reflect those changes as we've moved forward and there is yet more ahead of us so come back next time because we got to find out what these alleged towers are and that's up in the next episode of walking with dante i'm mark scarborough i'll see you then <laughs>